Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR130BZ140, Circumcision and Baptism, Church Law, 1 Peter 1 Pet 3, verses 18-22. Our scripture is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, Circumcision and Baptism. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the Spirit in prison, which sometimes are disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Our subject this morning is circumcision and baptism. And it is important to understand not only the relationship of the two, but also their relationship to Noah. Thus, much of what we say this morning will be directed to providing a background so that we can understand what St. Peter meant when he compared baptism to the flood. Unless we understand the comparison there, we fail to understand the meaning of baptism. Now the relationship between circumcision and baptism is very close in scripture. The two are the same rite. The ritual of induction, initiation, entrance into the covenant of grace. We saw last week that the relationship between the two is so close that in the early church it required a church council to give permission for baptism to dying children prior to the eighth day because according to scripture circumcision was only to be on or after the eighth day. Clearly, they saw that the same law governed both because circumcision and baptism were the same sign of the covenant. This is why, in the early church, there was infant baptism. The Baptist scholars ignore such things as this council or the fact of communion being served to all baptized children because such evidence makes clear that infant baptism was the rule. Circumcision was the mark of the covenant in the Old Testament, 
and it made a witness concerning man's fallen nature and the need for a new nature in God's covenant. Dr. Gerhardus Voss, some years ago, in writing on circumcision, said, and I quote, Circumcision has something to do with the process of propagation. Not in the sense that the act is of itself sinful, for there is no trace of this anywhere in the Old Testament. It is not the act but the product, that is, human nature, which is unclean and disqualified in its very source. Sin, consequently, is a matter of the race and not of the individual only. The need of qualification had to be specifically emphasized under the Old Testament. At that time, the promises of God had proximate reference to temporal, natural things. Hereby, the danger was created that natural descent might be understood as entitling to the grace of God. Circumcision teaches that physical descent from Abraham is not sufficient to make true Israelites. The uncleanness and disqualification of nature must be taken away. Dogmatically speaking, therefore, circumcision stands for justification and regeneration plus sanctification." Unquote. Circumcision was the symbolic cutting on the organ of generation to indicate that there is no hope in, in generation, but only in regeneration. Symbolically, therefore, circumcision represents a form of death. It meant a death to hope in generation, a cutting off of life. It also represented the removal of an impediment, as in Exodus 6, verses 12 and 30. The unregenerate heart is often spoken of in Scripture as uncircumcised. Circumcision as a sign of death clearly pointed to the death of Christ as man's representative. In the rite of circumcision, Abraham and his descendants supplied the death, the blood, indicating the necessity for death as entrance into the covenant. In the Passover sacrifice, it was the Lord who commanded the sacrifice and provided the blood in token of his blood covenanting. Christ died for us as our substitute, and the blood of the circumcision and the blood of the Passover lamb alike typified the work of Christ, provided, in a sense, both by his humanity and by himself as very God, high priest and victim. Now that his work on the cross has been established, blood has ceased to be, except in a memorial sense, an aspect of the covenant rite. In the place of blood, as a token of the sacrifice, something radically different and yet outwardly resembling it has been substituted. Wine. Wine as a life-giving, refreshing substitute. To indicate now the entrance into the covenant does not mean that we look ahead to death, to the death of the Lamb of God to take away our sins. 
but that this is behind us, and now the covenant is life-giving and refreshing. And therefore, it is no longer set forth in blood, both in circumcision and in the Passover, but by wine to indicate life and water to indicate, in part, cleansing. Thus, the Old Testament rites looked ahead to Christ the blood of circumcision and of the Passover lamb. They looked back to Adam and Abraham and to the Passover in Egypt. Baptism and circumcision looked back to the same events and to the cross, but ahead to our progressive sanctification, to the reconquest of men and nations and their submission to the Lord and to the new creation. Thus baptism, like circumcision, sets forth our death and our resurrection in Christ, our regeneration, our adoption, and our incorporation in the covenant of grace. It is a witness to grace rather than grace itself. Thus, it is not baptism, the act that gives us grace, but it is a witness to that grace we have received through Christ. Significantly, in the early church, baptism was called the great circumcision. Moreover, from the early years of the church, it was held to be valid only when done in the name of the Trinity, according to Matthew 28, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Very early, baptism was associated with the Easter season, with resurrection, but not exclusively so. It was performed at any time of the year, although very commonly at Easter. Moreover, in terms of Ezekiel 36, verse 25, where sprinkling is signified as the sign of the new covenant, sprinkling was the method of baptism. However, aspersion was also used very commonly. Aspersion took place when baptism was at a river and people waded out and stood ankle or knee deep in the water and then it was sprinkled over them. Immersion also came in subsequently. Now, immersion came about as a result of the belief that since the water stood for cleansing, therefore, the whole body should be placed under the waters. Moreover, at the same time, in view of the idea that man went into the covenant with nothing, because the early church took so literally everything in the Bible, baptisms were not only performed for a time in with immersion, but also in the new. The Baptists, therefore, are not faithful to the practice of baptism by immersion in those days, 
in the third and fourth century because if they were, they would also practice it in the nude. Now, we do have references to that practice in the days of St. Augustine. And I'd like to quote, for example, from one such summary of the third and fourth century practice by Bingham. St. Chrysostom, speaking of baptism, says, Men were naked as Adam in paradise, but with this difference. Adam was naked because he had sinned. But in baptism, a man was naked that he might be freed from sin. The one was divested of his glory, which he once had. But the other put off the old man, which he did as easily as his clothes. St. Ambrose says, Men came as naked to the font as they came into the world. And thence he draws an argument by way of allusion to rich men, telling them how absurd it was that a man who was born naked of his mother and received naked by the church should think of going rich into heaven. Cyril of Jerusalem takes notice of the circumstance together with the reason of it when he thus addresses himself to persons newly baptized. As soon as he came into the inner part of the baptistry, he put off your clothes, which is an emblem of putting off the old man with his deeds. And being thus divested, he stood naked, imitating Christ that was naked upon the cross, who by his nakedness spoileth the spoiled principalities and powers, publicly triumphing over them in the cross. O oh, wonderful thing, ye were naked in the sight of men, and were not ashamed. And this truly imitating the first man, Adam, who was naked in paradise, and was not ashamed. And so Amphilochius, in the life of St. Basil, speaking of his baptism, says, He arose with fear and put off his clothes, and with them the old man. Athanasius, in his invectives against the Arians, among other things, lays this to their charge, that by their persuasions the Jews and Gentiles broke into the baptistry and there offered such abuses to the catechumens as they stood with their naked bodies as was shameful and abominable to relate, unquote. We see how the early church was very literal-minded. They took the scriptures very seriously and sometimes pushed them to illogical conclusions. They began by practicing baptism and infant baptism with sprinkling in terms of Ezekiel. But then, because man's works had nothing to do with his salvation, they felt man should put off everything that belonged to him. And hence, baptism without a stitch on. The Baptists there are not consistent. We may be grateful for that. Certainly, they would gain vast audiences if they went back to this kind of thing. Now, circumcision also signified new life in the covenant Lord. But it also signified, as we have seen, judgment, a symbolic death. It indicated that, in a sense, they were under the judgment of God and deserved to die. And with that symbolic death which set forth, as the Passover lamb did, the death of Christ, they acknowledged that being sinners, they deserve to die, and they live by the grace of God who provided 
himself the blood of the covenant. Now why the comparison to the blood? It becomes obvious once we see the relationship of baptism not only to life but also to death. Circumcision being related not only to life but also to death, a symbolic death and arising from death. The whole of the sinful world of the days of Noah, because it was not under the blood of the covenant, was given over to death. And the waters of the flood covered the earth. And all died, saving, says St. Peter, eight souls who were saved by water. Noah, representing Christ, had preached to those who were in his day. As the minister, as the representative of Christ, he preached unto the spirits in prison, that is, to the people of his day, who were in bondage to sin. and were disobedient. And the long-suffering of God waited while they were ministered to in the person of Noah. But then they were judged, and the waters of the flood overwhelmed them. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. In other words, baptism signifies not only the washing away of our sins, but St. Peter says that's one aspect of it alone. So he says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, that is just a minor aspect, the negative. The positive is the answer of a good conscience toward God so that the judgment upon the old world is signified not only by the blood of the covenant, by the cross, by circumcision, by the Passover lamb, but also by baptism. Therefore, the mark of the covenant, baptism and circumcision, is also a sign of God's unfailing judgment on covenant breakers from the beginning of history. Those who bear the covenant mark and then sin are doubly covenant breakers. The early church knew this. They knew that baptism signified just what the flood had represented, God's judgment on unbelief, God's judgment on sin and that anyone who was baptized was doubly a sinner in the sight of God, not only in terms of his status as a natural man already under sentence of death, but for profaning the right, for being doubly a sinner, doubly offending in terms of his baptism. And thus, it was quite common in the early church for people to postpone their baptism until they were on their deathbed. 
This was the case with Constantine the Great, for example. Dr. Meredith Pine in our day has pointed out at great length how the early church saw baptism as comparable to the waters of Noah, the waters of the flood, as judgment. And he writes, and I quote, Jesus' reception of John's baptism can be more easily understood on this approach. As covenant servant, Jesus submitted in symbol to the judgment of God of the covenant in the waters of baptism. But for Jesus as the Lamb of God to submit to the symbol of judgment was to offer himself up to the curse of the covenant. By his baptism, Jesus was consecrating himself unto his sacrificial death and the judicial ordeal of the cross. Such an understanding of his baptism is reflected in Jesus' own reference to his coming passion as a baptism. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Jesus' symbolic baptism unto judgment, appropriately concluded with a divine verdict, the verdict of justification expressed by the heavenly voice and sealed by the Spirit's anointing, Messiah's earnest of the kingdom inheritance. This verdict of sonship was contested by Satan, and that led to the ordeal by combat between Jesus and Satan, beginning with the wilderness temptation, immediately after Jesus' baptism, and culminating in the crucifixion and resurrection vindication of the victorious Christ, the prelude to his reception of all the kingdoms of the world, the issue under dispute in the ordeal. This is very well put. Baptism very clearly signified judgment, and Christ in his baptism took on judgment that we might be spared from judgment. And so when we are baptized, we signify that indeed we, together with all men, deserve the same judgment that God passed upon the generation of Noah, but that we are cleansed by the waters of baptism by Christ's atoning blood and made new creatures in him. And so it was that when Jesus was baptized and went up straightway out of the waters, lo, the heavens were opened unto him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. This as the early church again and again reminded people in its preaching was like Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit brooding over the abyss, over the chaos, over the world, and bringing forth creation. And so when Jesus Christ was baptized, signifying by the water of baptism the judgment upon the whole of the world, when he descended out of the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit to signify that this was again a new creation was there, hovering over the new creation, Jesus Christ. Thus, one of the earliest documents of the early church reads, and I quote, Now regeneration is by water and spirit, as was all creation. 
For the Spirit of God moved on the abyss, and for this reason the Savior was baptized, though not himself needing to be so, in order that he might consecrate the whole water for those who were being regenerated." Unquote. Thus, baptism is the sacrament of the new creation. It signifies that those outside who are not under the waters of baptism will be under the waters of judgment, even as are those who, having been baptized, are faithless to the covenant, but that we, arising out of baptism, a new creation, are delivered by God into a new world, where Christ the King is our Lord, delivers us from victory unto victory. The promises to the covenant people in the Old Testament are remarkable ones. These are not retracted in the New Testament, but are rather expanded. As John Murray so very ably stated it, and I quote, Finally, we cannot believe that the New Testament economy is less beneficent than was the old. It is rather the case that the New Testament gives more abundant scope to the blessing of God's covenant. We are not, therefore, led to expect retraction. We are led to expect expansion and extension. It would not accord with the genius of the new economy to suppose that there is the abrogation of so cardinal a method of disposing and applying the grace which lies at the heart of God's covenant administration." Unquote. Thus, even as the blood of the new covenant, the communion, signifies not only refreshing wine, a new life, but also that all those who are not in the covenant are under the blood of judgment, even as the firstborn of Egypt. So the waters of baptism not only signify new life unto us and the washing away of our sins and the answer of a good conscience toward God, but that those who are not in Christ are under the waters of the flood, under a flood of judgment. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that as age after age the floods of judgment overwhelm men and nations. Thy covenant people, according to thy word, are in the ark of salvation, even Jesus Christ, and shall be lifted up above the waters of the flood and preserved unto thee. Make us ever mindful, O Lord, that we have been called unto victory in Jesus Christ and make us witnesses of that victory and the joy of salvation, that the joy of our Lord may ever be our strength. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. Does something more than we associate? For example, they will say that the baptism alone saves the person.
pointed out, baptism is a witness to grace rather than grace itself. The very word that is used to describe baptism and uh, communion is sacrament. Now, a sacrament is a sign of something, not the thing itself. Communion doesn't mean the cross. It is a sign pointing to the cross. Therefore, it cannot take priority over the cross of Christ. It cannot replace it. A sacrament, therefore, is a sign of an invisible grace. So it doesn't give it, it sets it forth, that it is already here, that God has given his grace to us unto salvation, and therefore we are baptized. Or we are born into the covenant of grace, and therefore we are baptized. So it is confusing a sacrament with the thing the sacrament sets forth. Yes. judgment on uh, those who are of the covenant outwardly but rejected is greater. And therefore the punishment of Esau was a particular punishment. He was set aside in a particularly severe way precisely because of the fact that he had received the sign of the covenant and had been faithless to it. Yes. No. But he commissioned his disciples to baptize. Yes. Yes, that is in Ezekiel 36, verse 25. The reference to sprinkling. Yes. Yes, in Genesis 3, they were naked with reference to God and ashamed. Whenever you have a rise of uh, nudism in any form, as you have repeatedly in history, it is a part uh, and parcel of the abandonment of Christianity and the insistence that man is naturally good without regeneration. So it is a religious act. It is the affirmation that there is no sin, that man in all that he does is good. Yes. Uh, 
scripture does call it wine, period. And it was wine. Now, it is true that uh, in Old Testament times, both the grape juice and the uh, wine were called by the same word. But we do know that they did use wine because it was only at the time of the harvesting that you had the new wine. And the Passover having come as it did, the time of the year it did, there wouldn't have been grape juice then, you see. It would have been fermented. What's that? What they mean by new wine is that it was uh, freshly squeezed and was just grape juice. But you only had that in those days uh, because they didn't pasteurize. You only had it in the harvest season. And the Passover was not at the time of the harvest, so they didn't have it. What is its relationship to the Old Testament rite? The relationship is this very definitely. In every continent of the world, you find circumcision. So apparently, once men all over the world practiced it. Very clearly, in the background of their thinking, you do find evidence that they once were aware of its meaning that it had relationship to God and was a covenant sign. Very definitely, however, it has lost that meaning with all of them, and it has just become an act of initiation, period. Nothing more. Entirely devoid of any meaning beyond that. So it does reflect the fact that mankind in the early days when it was still not spread as far as it uh, later spread itself, did know of the covenant and did know of the covenant sign and outwardly tried to pretend, well, we are the true people. What makes you think you are, you see? Just as Esau and the Edomites always maintained we are really the chosen people, the Hebrews over there are not. We are the sons of Esau, the eldest. And so, Herod, in the days of the apostles, claimed to be the Messiah. And the book of Acts gives us that claim. The people were all taught to cry out when he came with gold apparel and stood on the balcony, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of the Messiah. And God struck him down. So you can see how the idea that there was a covenant caught on with other people and it was maintained formally but without faith. In relation to that, uh, it's possible that the 
are not searching. You see, rather than primitive, they're decadent. They are people who are once on the same level, say, as Abraham and the others. And they have gone downhill progressively into barbarism and savagery. And instead of seeking, they are running away. Yes? in every continent peoples who for reasons of race or uh, uh, power have claimed to be the chosen people of history or of God or of the gods. Our time is just about up but there are a couple of things I'd like to share with you. One of the aspects incidentally of our Christian faith is that the Christian faith throughout history has been notable whenever it's been healthy as a religion of joy. Most religions are somber and gloomy, and unfortunately in our day the churches tend to make it a somber and a gloomy thing. But laughter and joy are a part of our faith. Well, the California farmer for January 16, 1971, has an interesting article by the editor Jack Pickett, who also has a ranch. And uh, a few things happened on his ranch recently that are rather delightful. Uh, he has <clears throat> a bull named Charlie, and his neighbor has a huge dapple Pertrin mare named Bess. Now, these are the characters in this episode. And the title is, The Neighbor Gets Charlie in Trouble. Charlie has been keeping his nose clean, but my neighbor has a huge dapple Pertrin mare by the name of Bess. Bess has a habit of going visiting. No one could figure out how she got out until one day she was shooting the bull with Charlie, to coin a phrase, and by, my cowboys noticed how she got out. Bess is about three pick handles across the butt, and she just turned around and sat down on the fence. <laughs> That fence went down like matchsticks, barbed wire and all. Charlie was pretty impressed. They were both into Charlie's choice hay when my boys ran her off and got the fence back up. Well, Bess liked Charlie's hay. So she sat on the fence next day. And my ten cowboys were going around saying things like, gee whiz and gosh darn, because they don't like setting fences. Well, I decided that we were going to have to install an electric fence. That dumb bunch of cowboys I have didn't know anything about electric fences, but full instructions came along for installation. I had to leave the ranch that day, but I warned those guys that 1,000 volts carries a wallop like a mule. Naturally, they fouled up the job. Instead of just stringing one strand like I told them, they strung two strands and put one strand on top, which didn't make much sense. Well, they did work like beavers and got the whole thing up and hooked her up to the juice. Guess who was the first casualty? That dumb, lazy cowhand, High Pockets, decided to climb over the top of the corral 
rather than go around through the gate. He gingerly got over the middle wire, but he was a little careless while straddling the top wire. And it seems that there is a copper rivet <clears throat> at an unfortunate spot on his jeans. When he got zapped, High pockets took off. <laughs> he took off into the wild blue like a frightened goose. <laughs> he was showered with uh, beer and flowers and obscene gifts for the next two days in the hospital. The next betting pool was on whether Charlie or Bess would be the next trainee. It turned out to be Charlie, and he got a full load. He was standing in a wet spot, and he stuck out his damp, inquisitive nose, and brother did that bull light up. Charlie went straight up into the air and turned around in the air and came down with his feet sucking air. Charlie took off like a racehorse, except he was running blind. He nipped off the corner post of the brand new water tower with Shorty up there banging home the last nail on the roof. 500 gallons of water and Shorty came down in a beautiful cascade. There was a cascade of water and a cascade of opinions from Shorty, who is too dumb to get hurt except for his feelings. Bess finally came over and sat on the fence. She was sitting when she got the message. Her owner couldn't believe his eyes when he saw his big old lazy mare come over the hill going like a bang tail stretching for the final wire. Charlie must be losing his marbles, either that or he has an awful short memory. It was only two days later after knocking down the water tower that Charlie saw Bess grazing in the furthest corner uh, she could get from that real weird Charlie Corral. Anyway, Charlie saw Bess over there, and he thought of the best method of opening a fence. Charlie turned round and tried to sit on the fence to crush it the way he'd seen Bess do it. Charlie didn't have as big or as tough a behind as Bess, nor does he have her weight. So that idiotic bull backs into 1,000 volts and lightning hit the outhouse, as the old saying goes. Charlie, with his eyes going in concentric circles, made another drag race start, flying blind. Shorty had carefully piled up the fragments of his water tower in a neat pile to see if anything could be salvaged. He had also set up the three posts in cement. Charlie hit the pile and went head over heels, uh, head over tea kettle, and snapped the single pole off like a straw. A lesser bull would have been killed, but an unrestrained shorty would have killed him. But cowboys, bull, and horse seemed to have finally got the phone call about electric fences. So it is now in place, but they have disconnected it. <laughs> One last word, it has been a very, very good week. 
Those of you who are there know that we had a wonderful beginning for the Calcedon Guild. We will have a second meeting on February the 11th to continue our studies in magic and witchcraft and a third one in March. You will receive information later on that. It was also a very good week because uh, Kennedy took a licking and the Beatles, according to the papers, are broke. This was our week, wasn't it? <laughs> Let's bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules. dot com.